0: CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit cua.org.
1: So welcome back, everyone. Um, This uh, last hour, will focus on bladder cancer therapies. So I'm really uh, happy to present Dr. Fabio Curie, who is a colleague of mine in Montreal. Uh, Dr. Curie was trained in radiation oncology in Parana, Brazil and uh, came over to Montreal to complete a fellowship and decided to stay with us. So uh, he, he is presently assistant professor at McGill University and uh, is involved in clinical research in bladder, prostate and kidney, kidney cancer. So really happy to uh, have a chance to meet and uh, uh, look forward to hearing to your talk.
0: Thank you so much. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you for, intro- for the introduction. And thank you for the, for the, the invitation to, to be here tonight. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, bladder cancer just before we start. Uh, those are my disclosures. Uh, and uh, those are the learning, uh, the learning objectives for this presentation. So by the end of the presentation, we are going to review the three most impactful, the most, the three most important abstracts on, on bladder preservation and it's curious to see that uh, the oral session had uh, those three abstracts being presented uh, at the meeting and uh, to understand some of the, the different approaches on the combination of immunotherapy with uh, the current modalities, the current treatments that we have for uh, bladder preservation. This is just remind you uh, how easy it was or it is to talk about preservation today. So uh, in, in current practice, if we are not talking about uh, a clinical trial, that's that's basically what we have. We have a maximum maximum TRBT followed by treatment. And uh, those are the options that we have. We have some discussions here on the doing the whole treatment at once or doing uh, restaging after an induction of chemo radiation therapy, and also that question about doing or not doing the adjuvant chemotherapy, many centers consider that standard. In others, there's a, a discussion about not doing We're not going through that discussion today. Uh, and then a consolidation uh, uh, with chemo radiation therapy when we are talking about bladder preservation. And, and like I said, this, this is to remind how this works today because. We see so many clinical trials uh, undergoing and ongoing, and and this is what we 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 saw uh, uh, during this this weekend in the the presentations uh, at the oral session. The combination of immunotherapy uh, with uh, bladder preservation at different time points, at at different uh, uh, time specific points uh, during that uh, uh, those. those, uh, uh, schedules that, that that I showed you. So all these studies, they are phase two trials, all assessing immune checkpoint inhibitors added to bladder preservation, all for patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, instead of going on one to, to to review one by one, I'm going to present first these two uh, uh, studies: uh, the American one and the Spanish study which assessed the combination of radiation therapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors. And this is the design for each one of them. What we have is a similar patient population for both studies, T2 to T4, bladder cancer, uh, uh, with patients with urothelial carcinoma histology mixed was allowed on both studies. On the American study, uh, they. It started with pembrolizumab, and, and, and that's why I wanted to, to show you that first slide. They started with pembrolizumab, and patients received the maximal TRBT three to four, two to three weeks later. And after that maximal TRBT, uh, then patients received the, 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 the treatment itself. They received the four weeks of chemoradiation therapy, hypofractionated radiation therapy to the bladder only, Uh, 52 grays in 20 fractions, and they received gemcitabine twice a week. Uh, And at the same time, they received uh, pembrolizumab uh, for three doses uh, every three weeks. And after that, patients were uh, assessed for response. And there you have how they did the assessment of response, TUR of the tumor bed, plus urine cytology and imaging. And the primary endpoint of this study was the bladder intact disease-free survival for any viable disease. Uh, The second study is for the same patient population, and they started with uh, uh, TURBT, and that was followed by a combination of IOs. Uh, Patients started with that uh, combination of IOs, uh, Durvalumab and Tremelimumab, Q4 weeks, and after the first cycle of that I.O. combination, uh, two weeks after they started radiation therapy, here radiation therapy was given on, with conventional fractionation, started with the treatment to the whole pelvis, and then they come down to the bladder up to 64 grays. Those are, that's the dose uh, that we see in studies like the RTOG studies, the MGH studies. Uh, and then patients were, uh, were assessed for a response similar to that point. And they included that what, what we see here, that, that becomes not part of the study, but uh, the standard of care. And the primary point here was also an assessment of complete response based on the absence of muscle invasive bladder cancer at the tumor site. We have here uh, some details for both studies. We are not comparing them, but it's just to see them side by side instead of presenting uh, numbers. And then you try to remember. I try to remember what were the numbers. So uh, the study that combined pembro and gem to radiation uh, to radiation therapy had 54 patients, and we have with a follow up of 15 months. Uh, uh, they treated pa- patients mainly with a T2 cancer, but 70 percent and 90. Uh, 90- 7% of those patients had had pure urothelial carcinoma. On the double IO, on the IO combination with radiation therapy, they had a slightly lower follow-up, less patients, and a higher percent of patients uh, with T2 disease. When we look at the response for each one of those studies, we see that uh, the, the uh, uh, Balar study, they had a 59% rate of complete response, and they had 11 patients that were not uh, assessed uh, uh, um, uh, at the, 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 the right timing as they presented, but all patients clinically had no evidence of disease, so they included those patients as having complete response as well, and they, present as, they presented as a clinical complete response of 80%. Uh, And in the double IO, they had an 81% rate of complete response uh, being 25 patients, uh, 78% of those patients with a T0 response, no disease at all, and one patient with no muscle evasive uh, bladder cancer. Uh, Four patients here are non-evaluated, and that, that, uh, 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 the the endpoint. Of one year bladder invasive disease free survival in patients with complete response was 89% in the PembroGem study and 73% in the Durva Tremie study. Uh, these are the, the side effects for uh, those two studies. I'm not going to go into details, but there are some side effects that are different from what we see on patients who are undergoing chemo radiation therapy today. Uh, and uh, here on the, the PEMBRO uh, study, they had a patient with a colonic perforation. And this patient ended up dying due to sepsis and fungimia. Um And they say, I don't know why, I don't know how, that uh, this was not due to radiation therapy and it was not a radiation oncologist presenting. So apparently there was no bias and I'm just repeating what I heard. Uh, and uh, grade three and four toxicity, any event of grade three and four toxicity, in the double IO study, we had a 31% that being in 10 patients. If we jump now to uh, a study that's, I would say a more provocative study, Uh, it's a phase two trial of uh, three drugs, gemcitabine, cisplatin, and nivolumab, Uh, As being the bladder preservation, the exclusive bladder preservation for these patients, we have uh, these uh, design patients with uh, uh, disease T2 to T4 uh, who were eligible for cisplatin. They started treatment with maximum TRBT that was followed by treatment, gemcitabine, cisplatin, and nivolumab. There was no radiation therapy in this study. And after those four cycles of uh, systemic therapy, they underwent a restaging. If at restaging, patients had clinical complete response, patients had the choice to choose between going ahead with immunotherapy, nivolumab for four months, or having a cystectomy. If they did not have a complete response, then they would go straight to a cystectomy. And these, these were, this is the number of patients that we see in each one of those uh, uh, steps. Uh, We had 76 patients starting the study, Uh, 64 patients uh, uh, completed the four cycles of uh, systemic therapy, and we had a clinical complete response in 48% of those patients. Out of those 31 patients, 30 patients had uh, completion or an adjuvant treatment with nivolumab, and one patient opted for cystectomy. And uh, patients who did not have a clinical complete response uh, were uh, 52%. And those are the two co-primary endpoints assessed in this study. And if I put side by side these results to the other two studies on immunotherapy presented at the the, the oral session, there you have 76 patients with a follow-up, a median follow-up of 13.7 months. Uh, slightly less percentage of patients with uh, T2 disease. And in terms of response, uh, we see that uh, 48% of patients had uh, complete response. And the one-year bladder intact disease free survival in patients who had complete response was 78%. And they mentioned that the local recurrence uh, happened in uh, eight of those 31 patients. They didn't say much about chemotherapy, about uh, uh, toxicity from that systemic therapy. Uh, They mentioned that there was no uh, patient who met the criteria for early stopping the clinical trial. Uh, And that uh, adverse events were consistent with other studies on gemcitabine cisplatin plus PD-1 blockade. And in general, those were the conclusions of these uh, three studies. Uh, Their combinations of IO with uh, bladder preservation uh, were basically uh, effective and they were uh, uh, well tolerated by patients. So they all mentioned that uh, further studies need to be done. And you know that. Further studies are being done. There are clinical trials, or phase three clinical trials underway right now. But this is just to show how many different flavors we have of that uh, combination of IO in the scenario of uh, immunotherapy, uh, of bladder preservation. And if I put here, and this is something I, I got this idea from the, 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 the debater of, the, of those three presentations. Uh, to compare with uh, uh, a study on bladder preservation uh, with chemotherapy and radiation therapy with no IO. And this study is interesting because it uses gemcitabine and hypofractionated radiation therapy. So basically what other studies like Balar did here. You can see that this was the Shodori study uh, is a study on 50 patients, um, and you see here the, 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 the rate of complete response at the end of treatment. Uh, you see that the combination between uh, uh, modalities. Uh, we see that uh, IO uh, side effects, the IO-related side effects are worse when you have a combination of IO, IO. Uh, and something that they didn't mention, and I think that for us who work here in Canada, is something important is the cost. Uh, While you don't have uh, better outcomes, I I think we need to keep investigating. And what's very important here is the multidisciplinary collaboration to avoid many different ways, many different flavors. A lack of consistency on the design of this study. And one day we have, uh, like I said, many different options and a lack of uh, a gold standard treatment for, for these patients. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Curry. Uh, very provocative. I hope we have a few minutes to to discuss further initiatives you have at McGill uh, in the Q&A session. Uh, So next up is Dr. Neil Fleschner, who is uh, known to many of you. Uh, Dr. Fleschner is chair and professor of urology at uh, U of Toronto. Uh, He's uh, certified in urology and epidemiology, trained at Columbia and Memorial Sloan Kettering. So he's going to talk about uh, some other potentially surgical aspects of bladder cancer from ASCO.
2: Well, first of all, good evening to everybody. And it's a pleasure to be here. And um, what I've done is um, picked uh, actually three uh, uh, ASCO highlights more in the surgical side, but I think you will find maybe in the discussion that there's a lot of uh, sort of congruity with what we heard uh, from our last speaker, particularly uh, in the uh, first um, uh, one that I've picked uh, just for my uh, they're my disclosures. So this is the neoadjuvant atezolizumab trial, uh, which was given with gemcitabine and cisplatinum in patients. And this is a single arm, uh, multi-center, single arm phase two trial. And really it builds off almost of what we talked about, about um, whether we can, um, you know, advance or improve the um, the concept of uh, uh, cystectomy from a neoadjuvant point of view, but but perhaps we could also interpret these data in light of what we just heard around bladder preservation. And this particular uh, trial was a SIMON um, two-stage study, um, basically looking at the concept of taking patients with clinical T2 to T4 disease, with muscle invasive disease, planned radical cystectomy, and give them a a um, as you can see, two-week run-in, then GEMSYS with a tizo uh, for four cycles, and then another sort of sandwich uh, at the end, and then and then move on to radical cystectomy. And the primary endpoint of this study was to look at, really ask the question, Is what proportion of patients would have PT2 disease or less at cystectomy? Uh, they also were interested in those having T0 disease. And again, this was assignment two stage, so basically what happens is is that 20 or 21 patients are accrued. And if nine have less than PT2, they would move on for an additional. So at the end of the day, they, they um, um, ended up achieving those endpoints, and, and, and the total data set um, ended up moving on to 39 patients who had evaluable um, response uh, data. And you can see it here on the left in the panel uh, 30 had pure urothelial carcinoma. A smattering of uh, other mixed histologies, uh, most patients with T2 disease, some with T3 and 4. Of course, we all know that clinical staging uh, is very difficult in bladder cancer. Um, and you can see the ECOG status, most of the patients, zero or one. And they also did do PDL1 status, and we'll perhaps talk about that a little bit later. But uh, you can see the vast majority at PDL1 based on um, uh, by, uh, immunohistochemistry. Uh, less than five percent. And the results are showed on the right, and you can see here of the 39 patients, uh, 27 of the 39, 69 percent achieved a PT2 rate or less, and you can see the breakdown. And and what's quite interesting is to see, of course, 44 percent were PT0 altogether. Another five percent had just some residual PTA, 15 percent some residual CIS, and uh, Smattering had some PT one disease, um, and you can see here that um, you know these data are quite, uh, I think, um, interesting. And in, in that when you start seeing these types of rates, you wonder. Getting back to what was talked about earlier, if we can perhaps consider managing these patients even without the cystectomy, certainly in in in, in a subset of patients, um, and um, interestingly the. All the patients that were PD-L1 positive had essentially achieved a response, but as I mentioned, it was only four patients, but those who were negative also did okay. So obviously PD-L1 determination wasn't that great. In terms of safety, as we just heard, very similar Um, in terms of safety related on the left to chemotherapy, on the right related to immune therapy, I don't think anything sticks out uh, particularly, I think perhaps uh, the venous thromboembolic event, but I think that's fairly well known that about um, 10 to 20% of patients on GEMSYS will get a thromboembolic uh, event. And again, a smattering of immune-related adverse effects. I think we're all familiar with these. Uh, transamini- uh, transaminitis, pancreatitis, etc. But certainly the incidence of grade 3 and 4 is, um, uh, immune-related adverse effects um, was, was quite small. Um, so the conclusion from this really is that uh, this neoadjuvant combination met its primary endpoint, 70% of patients with PT2 disease uh, or less at cystectomy, 44% actually being a total complete response, clearly better than chemo alone, which we know is in the 20 to 25% range. Um, and, and in terms of follow-up, because obviously that's important, that none of the patients who achieve that PT2 status or less actually had a, a relapse. So again, it's this concept of perhaps some immune memory or just a great tumor response. Um, the AEs were as expected. The PDL, one positivity rate was low. And, and if you have it, good for you, if you don't, it's, it's, it, it still could be good for you, so not very uh, informative. And I, and I think um, you know, these data, in my view, Uh, really are, they're tantalizing because I think it gets to the point, as was uh, just raised uh, by our prior speaker, about uh, whether uh, consolidative therapy with surgery is needed or radiation or anything at all, perhaps in a future state, if we have a safe uh, way to monitor these hyper responders. So I thought that this was quite uh, tantalizing and and really quite uh, consistent with what we we heard, albeit in the setting of radiotherapy as a consolidative conduct treatment, as opposed to to cystectomy. Uh,
1: <coughs>
2: the second um, um, presentation that I chose was this uh, uh, presentation by the group from the Netherlands at Erasmus, looking at the concept of circulating tumor cells um, uh, with respect to neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients. And 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 really, the we all know that muscle invasive bladder cancer is a um, it a, it's, it's a, sometimes can be a demoralizing disease to treat as a surgeon um, because patients, um, there's this trickery involved, right? You stage them and they have no METs and you operate on them and then, you know, a, a high proportion, you know, up to half of them will get METs in a fairly short period of time. We, and so it's this concept of micrometastatic disease that hampers this disease. And, and we are also familiar with the concept of a small benefit for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, although it tends to be underutilized. And certainly there is uh, many believers, including, frankly, me, that we probably overuse uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So this uh, raises, in my view, a very good scenario for a biomarker intervention strategy. Um, And of course, CTCs getting a little outdated. Certainly a lot of it's been replaced by circulating uh, DNA. Uh, related type of biomarkers. And there is some work, obviously, we're familiar with the work from Alex White in bladder cancer, but there is also work going on, I'm sorry, in prostate cancer, but there's also work going on in bladder cancer. And there is evidence showing CTCs, not surprisingly, are prognostic markers for outcome in in, in these patients. So so the investigators, I thought, uh, were bold, uh, and I suspect because they were not believers in chemotherapy, but they really hypothesized that Patients without CTCs are going to do so well that NA, that neoadjuvant chemotherapy is basically not required for those. So what they did is this trial called the CERT guidance trial, and they really took 273 patients. I just want to be clear, it's not a randomized study, uh, but what they did is basically said that if you have no CTCs, then you should not get chemotherapy. That was the advice to the patients you can see here on the left that if a patient had a CTC absent assay, the advice to patients was not to get chemotherapy. And you could see that, um, you know, the majority of them basically had immediate cystectomy, a small smattering had a NAC. Of the 70 patients who had CTCs, they advise them to go ahead and get cystectomy. um, And you can see, uh, I'm sorry, to get NAC. And you can see that um, about, you know, 18 of 70 got the NAC and the cystectomy. Uh, a smattering got um, the NAC, but still declined the cystectomy. And, and a, a large number, 47, just had cystectomy anyway. So, um, you know, not a great assignment uh, outcome. Uh, but they were particularly interested in, in this group, the group that had CTC absence. absence and they, they hypothesized that if they could obtain an OS rate of greater than 75% of the patients in CTC negative uh, patients, that uh, the benefit of NAC would basically not be um, uh, worth the cost and and toxicity and adverse effects. Uh, So that was their hypothesis going on to the trial. So so even though they kind of put this column by column, I think it's unfair. It's not really given particularly the disposition of the patients. I don't think this actually sort of does it justice, but nonetheless you can uh, see the distribution of uh, gender, smoking status, the usual players here. Um, so looking at the two-year overall survival, and again this is a um, you know sort of an, an intent to treat analysis, but you can see and uh, the but those who have biomarker positive disease um, did worse than those who had CTC negative disease. Uh, so, uh, not surprising. It's a prognostic factor and, and just confirming prior data on this. If you recall, though, they were hoping for a, a 75% or higher cure rate. And unfortunately, they it was 69.5%. So it was lower than what they had hoped based on their a priori hypothesis. Uh, and then you can see additional curves, um, curves looking at cancer-specific mortality, um, so you can see here, CTC positive do worse. Incidence of relapse worse. These are all statistically significant. And then, if you go according to NAC uh, use, you can see that those who had uh, CTC positive results but got chemo seem to do a little better than who had CTC positive disease who didn't get chemo. But as you, as as we said, these are very small numbers and difficult to draw uh, real conclusions from this. So certainly my conclusions here, I, I mean, I, I, some, to some degree, I commend the um, investigators for taking a biomarker based, if you will, stand to say, if you're negative, go right to cystectomy. My guess is because they don't use much NAC in their institution. So it probably wasn't a difficult sell for doctors and or patients. But nonetheless, you can see here that the two year OS rate in CTC negative patients was 70%. And this failed to meet their pre-specified criteria for success. Again, CTCs are prognostic. Um, I, I think their third bullet point is something that I would not uh, have gone out on a limb and saying that there's possibly an improved survival. I think this still re- remains a very uh, open uh, question. I mean, we know that NAC improves OS for all patients on average. Um, and um, so, so you know, they are wedded to this um, CTC Platform. I know there are concerns about CTCs as a platform, and I, I do see this field moving into the uh, circle of, um, of, of circulating um, DNA-related based assays, because you can also do the genomics and you can also uh, probably get better, more consistent yields and not require all of the um, sort of logistic um, challenges around CTC capture and, and, and uh, analyses. Uh, the third uh, uh, paper I uh, chose was actually an interesting one to me because we just published the Ontario experience with the same uh, um, sort of analysis. And I didn't think it was good enough to make GUASCO and didn't even submit it, although we, we have just recently got it published. But um, so I guess I should have submitted it. But nonetheless, it, it relates to this question, which I think is an important one, is how do we deal with, managing bladder cancer in the elderly uh, patients. And this uh, addresses one particular question that is the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and its impact. And this was a population-based study. It came out of Poland actually, uh, although it did use uh, us based data. So, so uh, we all know, and this is a challenge in all of our clinics is what to do with elderly patients with bad disease. I mean, obviously the best, um, Guidelines suggest that neoadjuvant chemo should be given. Um, and and of course, we all know that a NAC is underutilized in general. Um, but, you know, the question is, should we use it in the elderly? Um, and and of course, um, so this was an attempt to look at the impact of age and uh, NAC utilization and to uh, try and draw some conclusions. So this is a real world uh, um, Uh, analysis using data from the National Cancer Database uh, in the U.S., which we have used for for a number of studies. So uh, you could look uh, at the right at the uh, disposition, but essentially you can see there's over 500,000 patients with bladder cancer. And then they uh, weeded it down through, um, you know, excluding patients with metastatic disease, including those with T2 disease, looking at histology, uh, and then did the age substrata and then cystectomy, and, and you end up uh, with their cohort. Um, so their first analysis was to really look at um, basically association, how many, what were the trends of using neoadjuvant chemo and what was the impact of age? So you can see here in the upper right panel, I think, well, and we showed this in Ontario that the uh, uh, utilization of neoadjuvant chemo has gone up in both the elderly and the young, but it remains stubbornly obviously lower in, younger, uh, in older patients. And you can see here, um, that on the on the right, I'm just going to cut to the chase. When you look at perioperative outcomes in those over the age of 70 in the post- propensity waiting uh, study, those who got NAC, actually, if anything, did uh, better in terms of perioperative outcome, length of stay, readmission rate, 30 day mortality, et cetera. And you can see on this bottom panel that there was a, an association of NAC use with perioperative outcomes. They conclude, Uh, that um, basically utilizing this therapy um, somehow results in better perioperative outcomes. But the reality is um, it doesn't make sense. Uh, I mean, what this of course doesn't look at is the fact is which man or woman over 70 do you choose to give NAC to? So without randomized data, it's very difficult to look at the outcome and and really make this conclusion. I think probably a a fair conclusion is to say, those who you think can tolerate NAC is associated with a better outcome. But I don't think we should interpret this and say every older patient should get it. Secondly, many patients are on their 80s. What are we gonna do with those? And I'll just lastly say, and we've learned this, that a substantial proportion of patients who get NAC never get to cystectomy. So by by, um, uh, using their search strategy, and not capturing those patients, they may be missing patients who have a bad adverse outcome from NACA. As we talked about cardiovascular outcome, for example, and um, and um, they, these get lost from these analyses. So that's my uh, final conclusion on that. And I, I'm gonna stop there. I had some backup slides for if we had time, but I think we're good. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Dr. Fleschner. Uh, actually, to prepare the Q&A session, um, I, I, I do lung cancer in my other life and Dr. Spicer from McGill presented eloquently that uh, in lung cancer patients treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, uh, patients that do get bigger treatments, have bigger uh, response rate, actually uh, have better surgical outcomes. So, so that's probably something to look at in, in that field. So we might come back to that uh, after Dr. Jiang's presentation. So our last speaker for tonight is Dr. Maria Jiang, who is assistant professor at the University of Toronto. She's a staff medical oncologist at uh, Princess Margaret Cancer Center. She completed her medical oncology training in Toronto, did a master's of public health, um, um, master's at, um, uh, at Harvard University, and she's now a staff at uh, PMH. So I'm really happy to listen to her talk about uh, uh, our last piece of uh, bladder cancer studies.
3: Thank you, Norman. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for the invitation to present ASCO highlights on metastatic urothelial cancer. Um, so uh, here are my disclosures. So for the next 15 minutes, um, I'm going to go over three oral abstracts that were presented uh, at this year's ASCO meeting. Uh, I'm also going to review the current treatment landscape uh, of metastatic urothelial carcinoma, which is uh, quickly evolving. Um, and so uh, there's um, lots, to, uh, lots of developments uh, that are coming. The first abstract was presented by Dr. Monty Pell, and this was an investigator initiated phase two study ran from uh, NCI CTEP program looking at uh, patients uh, with metastatic erothelial carcinoma who are uh, treatment naive, so in the first line setting. The rationale for this study stem, stems from the fact that cisplatin-based chemotherapy is the standard of care for eligible patients in first-line menastatic urothelial carcinoma. Uh, its mechanism is to induce potentially lethal DNA damage. However, for cancer cells uh, that are able to repair this DNA damage, its efficacy may be compromised. The schematic on the right is a simplified uh, diagram uh, looking at the mechanisms for DNA damage repair. Uh, And to highlight that the ATM protein uh, is thought to respond to double strand DNA breaks, whereas the ATR protein uh, in addition also responds to single-stranded DNA breaks. And uh, through subsequent signaling mechanisms, uh, these pathways trigger cell cycle checkpoints and promote homologous recombination for DNA repair. The thought is that if you were to inhibit the ATR pathway and inhibit the cells from repairing this DNA damage induced by cisplatin, you may be uh, able to achieve greater cell kill um, in in a process that may be uh, analogous to uh, synthetic lethality. So with this in mind, Bursacertib was developed and is a first in-class agent for an ATR inhibitor uh, with highly potent selective activity. The supporting data comes from preclinical data showing potential synergy uh, of this compound with cisplatin and some phase one uh, studies demonstrating feasibility of this combination approach. This is the study design and uh, patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma who are in the first line setting uh, with no prior treatment other than uh, perioperative platinum more than 12 months out or enrolled, patient had to be cisplatin eligible as defined by a slightly modified GALCS criteria. 87 patients were randomized one-to-one into the study to receive either standard of care cisplatin gemcitabine with first assertive or uh, with standard of care cisplatin gemcitabine alone. Treatments were continued for up to six cycles on each study arm. It is important to note that the chemotherapy used in the combination arms used a slightly lower uh, starting dose, with cisplatin, dose at 85% of the usual dose, and gemcitabine, 87.5% of the usual dose. And this is uh, in anticipation of myelosuppressive side effects from this compound versus assertive. Primary outcome was PFS, Secondary outcomes uh, were OS response rate and uh, toxicity. This is the efficacy and toxicity data from this trial. Uh, Progression-free survival were similar in both arms, both 8.0 months. Overall survival, surprisingly, was actually shorter in the combination arm with median OS of 14.4 months versus control arm 19.8 months. This five-month median overall survival difference did not, however, meet statistical significance, although this is uh, fairly concerning to see uh, this difference. The combination arm had a lower objective response rate of 54% compared to 63% in the control arm. In terms of toxicity, uh, as expected, there were higher uh, myelosuppressive side effects in the combination arm, including uh, grade three and grade four myelosuppression. And along with a lower starting dose use in the combination arm, this contributed to a much lower cumulative cisplatin dose used in the combination arm, being 250 milligram per meter squared. Uh, and this is equivalent to about three and a half cycles of gem cis, uh, rather than the intended six cycles. In the control arm, the cumulative cisplatin dose is 370, uh, roughly about five cycles of gem cis. So, it is thought that this much lower doses is patent used um, in the combination arm uh, contributed to a lower or a shorter median overall survival that was seen. So, the takeaway is that this uh, first in class ATR inhibitor, BursaSertib, does not have a role in combination with first line GEM cis, and these data do not warrant further investigation in the setting. However, whether this versus assertive uh, compound has um, any other um, use in in other clinical settings, such as in a maintenance setting or a combination of IO or in a biomarker-selected setting, for example, in patients who are ATM deficient or with DNA damage repair mutations, remain to be seen. The study highlights that cisplatin-based regimen remains the backbone of first-line treatment of metastatic urothelial cancer And I think this trial also importantly highlights that significant dose reductions may compromise treatment outcomes for this platinum sensitive disease. The second abstract I would like to go go over is um, the Keynote 052 phase two study uh, with a five-year follow-up update uh, and presented by Dr. Peter O'Donnell. This is... um, uh, evaluating first-line Pembrolizumab in patients who are cisplatin ineligible with metastatic urothelial cancer. This was a phase two study. Uh, study design was quite straightforward. Uh, patients who are cisplatin ineligible uh, defined by the gull criteria. Patients received Pembrolizumab for, uh, with 200 milligrams IVQ three weeks for up to 24 months and Pembrolizumab was discontinued after two years. It is also important to highlight that even though this is a phase two study, the patients enrolled were 370. So this was quite a large study and represents the largest data set to date in um, first line uh, cisplatin ineligible patients receiving IO. Primary endpoint was confirmed overall response rate by independent radiology review. Secondary endpoints uh, include PFS, uh, duration response, OS safety. And these analyses were performed for the overall population as well as patients with high PDL1 and low PDL1 defined by check, uh, defined by a CPS score 10 or above or lower than 10. This is highlighting the response seen in the trial. And so on the left, you'll see that in um, the uh, overall patient population, overall response rate was 28.9%. A third of patients in the study had high PDL1, and among these patients, overall response rate was slightly higher 47.3%. However, even in low PDL1 patients, you had a, you had a meaningful overall response rate of 20.7%, suggesting that, uh, as we know, PDL1 is not a reliable predictive biomarker in this disease. On the right, you'll see the median duration of uh, response, which was quite impressive, median of 33.4 months. And the updated analyses also show that uh, at three years, about half the patients were still responding, despite that the patients uh, discontinued pembrolizumab after two years. And these curves further separated a little bit uh, with pdl one high patients having a median duration of response not reached with five-year follow-up and PDL1 low patients still had a fairly meaningful duration response of 21.2 months. On the top, you'll see the overall survival data presented uh, median overall survival 11.3 months, which was unchanged from previous publication. Again, you see that at four years, about 20% of the patients were uh, still alive, and suggesting a subset of these patients uh, benefited from this treatment and uh, were still alive without the use of chemotherapy. Patients with higher PDL1 uh, had median OS 18.5 months, lower PDL1, uh, 9.7 months. On the bottom left, you see the patients uh, had much uh, better median overall survival when they had a complete response versus a partial response. And the graph on the bottom right shows that these patients who had a complete response and a partial response. Uh, PDL1 status did not further separate those curves, again, suggesting that um, the degree of response is much uh, more important and PDL1 is not a uh, reliable predictive biomarker. So, for this study, um, this uh, updated analysis uh, continued to show that in cisplatin ineligible patients, upfront pembrolizumab demonstrated meaningful and durable disease response. We do not have this available in Canada, and I would like to um, uh, highlight that for most of these patients, uh, they are eligible for gemcarbo, and I would say that very few patients would be uh, carboplatin ineligible. I put up this table to highlight that we know from the EORTC study, gemcarbo has an overall response rate about 40%. We now have two uh, phase two studies looking at single agent atezo and pembrolizumab having response rate less than 30%. And we also have recent phase three uh, data from Invigor130, Kino 361 and Danube study. And pulling out the cisplatin ineligible patients, you can see that overall response rates of single agent uh, IO in this setting uh, is usually less than 30%. And even in the high pd one patient population, generally, gemcarbo had a much higher response rate. Even though the overall survival data uh, looks like they were similar, uh, they were either non-significant compared to gemcarbo or the overall trial was negative, so that did not prompt further definitive statistical testing. We also know that, that the current standard of care with the javelin bladder 100 study showing that in cisplatin ineligible patients, uh, who respond to Gem Carbo or who have stable disease on gemcarbo, maintenance of Alamab also improves overall survival uh, in this setting and uh, should be the uh, standard of care. The final abstract I would like to go over is uh, presented by doc- again by Dr. Bilar, uh, looking at the induced one phase one study. And this study looked at a novel therapeutic target uh, named ICOS, which is an inducible T-cell co-simulator. And uh, this is present on T-effector cells uh, providing a co-symmetry signal for for immune response. This uh, is a subject to target by uh, this agent called uh, Felidilumab developed by GSK. is a first-in-class monoclonal antibody with agonist activity of this receptor to promote T-effector immune response. There are some previous phase one studies in other disease sites demonstrating single agent activity which prompted this study. In the induced one trial, there were two cohorts. Uh, the first cohort is looking at patients who were heavily pretreated, progressing after platinum and immunotherapy. 14 patients were enrolled in this cohort and received faladilumab single agent. Second cohort were patients who uh, progressed on platinum but not yet uh, progressed on immunotherapy, so they were IO-naive, and they received combination of plus pembrolizumab. and this cohort included 32 patients. Safety profile was actually demonstrating felidilumab uh, in both cohorts were very well tolerated. Here we show in this table that in patients uh, who received monotherapy, faladilumab uh, in patients who were heavily pretreated, uh, in fact, one patient had a response, and this patient had a uh, lung metastasis and, and had a reasonably durable response about six months. In the combination cohort, um, patients uh, had a response rate of 22%, including patients with liver metastases. Median duration response was eight. Uh, 0.3 months. So if we look at the combination cohort response rate in comparison with the Keynote 045 study, uh, similar looking at second line setting after platinum, overall response rate with single agent pembrolizumab was fairly similar at 21.9 months, with the duration of response 29.7 months. So overall, I did not think that the combination cohort data at least was very groundbreaking but it was interesting to see a response in a monotherapy cohort in patients who have progressed on immunotherapy. They looked at um, potential biomarkers, including PDL1 positive and uh, ICOS-positive cohorts, although these are small numbers, retrospective analysis, so these are exploratory only. So in summary, this represents a novel therapeutic target with this ICOS uh, receptor. Faladilumab demonstrated tolerable safety profile, some clinical activity, not groundbreaking but durable responses, and further data are needed to further study this agent. So here we are with the current treatment landscape of metastatic urethelial cancer uh, carcinoma as of June 2021. For cisplatin eligible patients, uh, first-line treatment includes cisplatin chemotherapy. And for cisplatin ineligible patients who are eligible for eligible carbo, the recommended treatment would be carboplatin-based chemotherapy. And following platinum, therapy, following platinum chemotherapy, for those who develop a response for stable disease, they can go on to maintenance of Alamab. For patients with progressive disease after platinum, they can then go on to second-line Pembrolizumab. We have ERTAfitNib uh, now available to us for patients with FGFR mutated tumors uh, and uh, who progress after platinum chemotherapy. We also have infortimab-vidotin that is just recently made available through uh, SAP program with Health Canada. And the indication for infortumab is for patients who progress after platinum and immunotherapy. We also have older um, data for pathetaxel. And I think given the lower response rates, uh, this should be uh, sequenced uh, after these uh, newer agents. So the three abstracts that we discussed today uh, did not... uh, Uh, definitely change this current uh, treatment paradigm. Uh, However, there's some exciting data presented and I think warrants further uh, investigation. I do not have time to go over other abstracts, but just to highlight that there were some interesting subgroup analysis presented from the Javelin Bladder 100 study for maintenance of There were two abstracts presented on imfortumab. one being the EB-103 study with updated uh, uh, data, again, confirming overall response rate of over 70% in the first-line study combined with pembrolizumab. And I think this is very exciting, and we'll see if further data can see whether this is a combination that may um, potentially finally beat uh, platinum chemotherapy. The EV301 quality of life uh, was also uh, presented um, uh, as an abstract and showed favorable results. Interestingly, there were uh, two abstracts looking at a compound of RC48 antibody drug conjugate from uh, a group in China looking at a HER2 targeted therapy approach. Their study... Uh, in combination with NTPD-1 in HER2-positive metastatic urothelial cancer demonstrated an impressive overall response rate over 80% in the first-line and second-line setting. And as a single agent in heavily pretreated patient population, after platinum and IO, demonstrated an overall response rate of 50%. So these data were in further investigation, but were not presented as an oral uh, session uh, at this year's ASCO. So I think that the take-home message is that although there were no practice, practice changing data in the, in the uh, area of metastatic urothelial car- carcinoma at this year's OSCO, treatment landscape is rapidly evolving, and it's actually quite an exciting time to be a geomedical oncologist uh, at this time. Thank you kindly for your attention.
1: Thank you, Maria. I never would have thought two years ago that we would be talking about fourth-line uh, treatments for bladder cancer, but this is uh, indeed an exciting time. Uh, we do have a few questions from the floor, and we do, and we have a few minutes to address them. Uh, one important question is concerning bladder preservation studies. Um, maybe the uh, question could be to Dr. Curry: Do you think that uh, biomarkers, pdl one CTCs, uh, ctDNA could be useful in, in planning those studies in the future?
0: Actually, they looked into that and uh, it, 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 as most of these studies were presented as part of an early uh, 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 outcome. They they didn't do a long follow-up enough to have those answers. And with two of them, they mentioned that uh, they, they will have uh, follow-up studies on those subjects. So we have to keep connected and uh, see what's going to happen in the future. But right now we we don't have that answer.
1: Another question for Dr. Fleschner, maybe. Um, uh, Dr. Mack from the floor was wondering if uh, you could break down the types of chemotherapy that uh, were given to the elderly patient population uh, over 70. So the question would be, did most patients receive Genesis, which I would expect Right. Uh, did some patients get other types of chemotherapy? Right.
2: There? Good question. So the answer, uh, Dr. Victor is um, basically all of the above. So because of the way they search their data set and because of the uh, length of time, uh, it include, it had to include platinum-based chemotherapy, but any platinum-based regimen was considered uh, in, basically. So I hope that addresses your question.
1: So did we... We didn't analyze outcomes by types of treatment.
2: They did not do it that way.
1: No. So, so one question I have for you, Neil, is uh, like like we're doing in lung. Do you think that the generation of of new new adjuvant paradigms will change the way you approach surgery in terms of types of surgery, types of aggressiveness? Uh, is that something that's going to change?
2: Well, I mean, I, 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 I'm curious uh, to hear what Fabio says, but I mean, what I'm, huh, I, I think we use a fair amount of, of neoadjuvant. I think the uh, insertion of IO into the neoadjuvant space is something that um, it really is starting, you're starting to see response rates and CR response rates that are quite, quite tantalizing. And, and uh, you know, as a surgeon, um, and I'm a big supporter of trimodal therapy, Um, you know, we've always been brought up as oncologists, both radiation surgical and we have to consolidate the neoadjuvant. And the question is, do we, you know, are there subsets of patients who we won't have to in the future? I I think it's, I'd be curious to hear what Fabio thinks, but, um, but yeah, and you know, bladder preservation, we're we're big endorsers of bladder preservation at, at Princess Margaret for the right
0: patient. Yeah, like, like Norman, I also have a, a, another life, and that's uh, head and neck. And in the head and neck tumors, there is also a, a big discussion about the use of adjuvant chemotherapy. And today we know that uh, based on not on randomized trials, but many meta-analyses of thousands of patients, that, that's not the best option. And I know that we extrapolate a lot. Uh, When we talk about consolidation with chemoradiation therapy, after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we are extrapolating the assumption, not the assumption, but the knowledge that uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy with cisplatin improves overall survival in patients who have surgery. But we don't know what happens for for patients who have consolidation or treatment with chemoradiation therapy. So I hope that uh, we have that qu- that question answered. I don't know how because clinical trials are not questioning that at this point. Maybe with IOs, maybe IOs will be able to, to help us uh, understand that better.
2: And I think also just, you know, we're talking about a but in prostate, you know, there's more and more evidence in the radiation space that, uh, you know, adjuvant's the way to go versus neoadjuvant. So you know, again, different mechanism of action, but... I think we're gonna have to see each disease, uh, each disease's data sets tell us ultimately what to do. I would just
3: like to add as well, uh, if I might, I think that in terms of bladder preservation, patient selection is really key for optimizing patient outcomes. We don't currently have biomarkers uh, to tell us which patients should be considered for bladder preservation. We don't have molecular biomarkers that are validated for this purpose. Uh, But I think we we have to remember also that uh, the response for neoadjuvant chemotherapy is actually one of the best biomarkers that we have. And that should really be considered in um, a treatment paradigm that unfortunately still underutilizes neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to chemo uh, radiation. Um, And, um, um, you know, a multidisciplinary discussion is very important.
1: So um, I have a follow-up question to that statement, Maria. It, we have we have we're participating in trials now with neoadjuvant uh, IO chemotherapies. And the biggest challenge is to discuss the patients that have a complete response to treatment. Uh, so they're wondering whether they should undergo cystectomy or radiation, or they or you see them after surgery and you can't find tumor in their bladder, and they're wondering why you operated on them. Uh, do you think we'll evolve to a day where? we can guide patients to surgery or radiation or not?
3: Yeah, I I think again, you know, here at Princess Margaret, we have a multidisciplinary bladder clinic where they go see uh, excellent uh, physicians like Neil and, uh, and others. Um, to discuss, I think if they have a PCR, you know, the question will be: Does everybody need a uh, cystectomy, and can people uh, get by with chemo radiation? Now, we've shown data from our center that the bladder preservation success rate um, is quite high. You know, about eighty percent, 75, 80 percent of patients are able to preserve their bladder. And if they're able to have a, a, a good surveillance program and able to have the recurrence detected early, they can still undergo salvage cystectomy for local recurrence. So not necessarily compromising on their overall treatment outcomes. Uh, but again, you know, patient selection is key. And they're also, you know, it's it's very good to see that there's a growing interest in bladder preservation. At this year's ASCO, we have also a lot of trials available in this setting. Um, we have, um, you know, the EB one of one hundred and three looking at infortimab uh, as as perioperative approach. We also have the BL thirteen study looking at the role of durvalumab after bladder uh, preservation, and so those trials are are very important.
2: Yeah, I would just add that you know, I mean, the reality is, radiotherapy from a quality of life point of view, is pretty damn good, um, and very few patients end up. With you know grade three bladder toxicity, so probably maybe the start, we should radiate them, and then and then maybe start pulling back. I, I Victor Mack wrote about a partial cystectomy. Maybe we should start, be, you know, thinking in that way, where we would remove as a first step maybe just the tumor cavity or the, the crater. Um, but I think you know, I think the difference between IO and chemo is this is this me- memory uh, potential. Uh, which I think changes that, that paradigm about perhaps needing consolidative treatment versus the classic log uh, kill mechanism of chemotherapy.
1: So it's 10 o'clock and to uh, respect the, um, the differences in time zones, I'm going to, uh, uh, to end this session and turn over uh, to Anil for maybe a few final comments.
2: Thanks, it was a great session, uh, nice job. Uh... Uh, Maria and uh, Neil and uh, Fabio I really
1: enjoyed that so the webinar evaluation will be sent to you uh, for that Um, and fill that out to get your uh, MoCom points so anyway uh, thank you very much
3: everybody for attending and have a great evening all the best good night everyone